Dear Father, please be with us during this time, not just today, but during the next two years as we try to go all the way through the Bible. And our search during this time is really to discover your heart, your mind, your motives, to try to come closer to how you think and how you feel and to understand your actions in human history. So please reveal to us a clear understanding of these truths about you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I ex always get excited here at the beginning of a Bible study. Uh, my wife and I started doing this in our home about five years ago, and so we've had a chance to go through this a few times with uh, medical students. And I just noticed in listening to my introductory Bible study two years ago how my own thoughts have, um, in certain areas, well, maybe I express things a little bit differently or have some, some new understanding. And the Bible, uh, to my understanding, is a book that is like no other. Uh, there are very few books that I would want to read twice. Very few books. But uh, the Bible is one that it seems to me every read through, it just gets deeper and deeper. The understanding gets more wonderful. And so uh, we try to keep up ourselves reading as we go through this Bible study. Now, I know you guys are all swamped and incredibly busy, but it would be ideal. It would be wonderful if you could keep up in reading at the same time. Uh, one nice thing is now, of course, the Bible is available in so many versions um, as an audio CD, or you can listen online at various places. And um, it's surprising how much of the Bible you can get through listening in your, in your car. It takes a lot of concentration, but if you get a modern speech, modern language version, um, you can get through many chapters in a hurry. So if you have a chance, try to do that. I want to just mention one thing. I really want to get pictures of some medical students here, but... Uh, the reason I put this up here is uh, there is a website, godscharacter.com, and I've changed it dramatically from a year ago. Um, all of these talks will be put up on the web. All the talks from the last two years are up on the web. Uh, I have a lot more written material and articles uh, that are there if you're interested. And also the schedule is there as well. So if you're wondering when is the next Bible study, you can just go to the website, and there's a place there for the 2000. 7-2008 calendar, and um, there you can find the appropriate Bible study, and you can see September 13 and 27. Um, I've tried to um, schedule these meetings when there is a test week or something going on, and so we won't meet next week. Today's going to be kind of an introductory Bible study, big picture ideas to give you a sense of direction, and then our next one will be on September 27. So we'll be putting some stuff up there on the website. So anyway, what's, uh, what's the focus here of this Bible study? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Bible is really a story. And what we typically do as adults, I've noticed, is that we tend to talk a lot of um, theology and use big Latin words, justification, sanctification, propitiation, righteousness by faith. And we tend to talk in these terms, but yet the Bible is predominantly a story. 80, 90% of the Bible is a story. And uh, this really came home to me a few years ago when my daughter Christina, I think she was in first grade, and came home uh, in tears because her best friend had decided she didn't want to be her best friend anymore and told her maliciously that she was moving to another school. She really wasn't, but uh, she just wanted to hurt Christina. And so um, anyway, we found out, we called, we knew the parents, and so we called them and just found out it wasn't true. 
And so we were talking about this around the dinner table with Christina, and uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen her so angry. She was just furious. And, uh, you know, as parents, sometimes we can be kind of uh, manipulative and looking back, but I think it, the suggestion came up, well, you know, ideally, we're nice to people even when they're mean to us. And, uh, well, it ha- just so happened that night, we're going through a, a Bible story book, and the story that night was David and Goliath. I didn't make any connection, but we read through the story, um, which, you know, is pretty brutal. Uh, David not only threw the stone at Goliath, but then we read on and he cut his head off. And um, so Christina, just very innocently, said, you know, well, how come David wasn't kind to his enemy, Goliath? And, um, okay, think fast. What, how do you answer a question like that? And, you know, we, uh, we had just read Samson a short time ago. And, you know, say, Daddy, how come... Samson wasn't kind to his enemies. Why did he kill a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey? And uh, boy, you know, it's getting late. Why don't we go to bed? Let's talk about this tomorrow. (laughs) So the point is we have to be able to take those stories and make some sense of them. It's almost like we give them to the kids. You guys deal with the stories. We'll just take the summary statements. All right, but I think the stories are really where the evidence lies. So this will be a Bible study very much going through the stories. And as all of you know, there are very difficult stories in the Bible. But of course, the heart of the Bible is the life and death of Jesus. So even though this entire school year, we will be going through the Old Testament, um, the light that was revealed by Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his death, this will be the focus. I mean, I don't think there will be a single Bible study that we don't try to illuminate some Old Testament story through the words of Jesus. All right, this is a Bible study, so I think these words fit for us quite well. In John 5, Jesus said, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly. He's talking to Bible teachers, very serious Bible students. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. Well, don't we? But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Okay, the Bible is about a person. And uh, my own conviction is that the purpose, the main purpose of the Bible is to reveal to us the character of God. The Bible is the story of God and we are to come closer to an understanding of what God is like in the Bible. That is the main point. Salvation is through a person, not through a book. And on this subject of eternal life, these words here at the very end of Jesus' life for me are so important. All right, now he's up in the upper room. He's just about to go out to Gethsemane. He has to tell his disciples something very, very important. And here in John 17, he starts out by saying, this is eternal life. Okay, how, would you, how would you finish the sentence here? Okay, we all know the answer to that. Eternal life is living forever. Isn't that what we've always been told? Okay, read on here. Jesus, how does he define eternal life? To know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Very, very significant. I want to spend just a few minutes with you going through these very important words, to know, in the Bible. Eternal life is to know a person. How do we know that person? And I would say it is through the revelation of what that person, that God, is like. Jesus Christ, who is none other than God in human form. Now notice the words of Jesus as they continue. I have shown your glory on earth. We'll talk about this later, but Jesus did not come and reveal that God was bright. He didn't come and reveal that God was an intimidating force. 
and glory again and again and again through the Bible is not primarily about brightness or power. Glory is about character. I have shown your glory, your character on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Now it's interesting he said this before he died. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And you might wonder, he finished what work? What was his work in coming? What did he finish? Well, we read on. I made your name known to the people you gave me. And here I love the Message Bible translation, uh, which says, I revealed your character to the men and women you gave me. Jesus came to bring us eternal life. And eternal life is all about a relationship with a person. And he came to reveal God's character, to restore love, trust, and that we feel entirely comfortable uh, entering into this relationship with God himself. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit more to make it uh, convincing to know God. This is all the way through Genesis to Revelation. What does it mean to know in the Bible? Most of you are familiar with this. And Adam knew Eve, his wife. And what happened when he knew his wife? Intimacy. In this case, to know is even describing the physical intimacy between a man and a woman. And you know, our relationship with God is, is it to be less uh, intimate, distant? No, these words are very significant. In Hosea, my people are being destroyed. Why? This is God speaking. Because they don't know me. What don't they know? They don't know what God looks like. Uh, no, this is describing a knowledge of his character. That's what they don't know. That's why they're being destroyed. And in John 1, the description of Jesus, God in human form, coming, these words, very powerful. No one has ever seen God. The only Son, who is the same as God, notice who has the same as God, and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Why did God enter the womb of one of his children? He came to reveal what God is like. He came to make him known. Okay, and so we have these just big picture summary statements. If you were just asked, okay, what was the main message of Paul? And we might get into some Latin terms again. But I would consider this to be a main thrust here. Look at how the emphasis that Paul places on it. I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable. Okay, what is of greatest importance? The knowledge of Christ Jesus. Again, consider the importance of those words. The knowledge, intimate knowledge. Not of where Jesus was born or factual details about his life. It's a knowledge of what he's like in character. That's what it's all about. And he just nails the point even stronger. For this sake, I have thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may gain Christ. And again, to gain Christ is to enter into this very close trusting relationship. And really, there's no desire to enter into that relationship if our picture of God is that of a severe tyrant. And we can't believe that if we believe that God is just like Jesus. And I'm not going to read this whole verse, but you're familiar with the description. Three times Jesus tells a parable about the second coming. And he describes those on the right and on the left hand. And these words to those who say, please open, let us in. And the words which always seem really bothered me for a long time. And God says to them, I never knew you. It sounds cold. But again, the meaning of the words to know, the great significance. And this means God is saying to them, look, you don't know me. You certainly don't know what I'm like. 
We do not have a relationship, a knowing, intimate, personal relationship. Okay, if this is what is said to people who don't enter heaven, uh, this would seem to be a, a critically important. And that's why the focus of this Bible study all the way through will be, what is this story? What does that story? What does it tell me about the kind of person that God is? All right, we come to the end of Jesus' life and some more critically important words here. I'm just kind of getting the big picture statements here. Jesus said, I was born and came into this world for this one purpose. How would we finish the statement? Jesus' words himself, I came for this one purpose. Okay, why did Jesus come? Let's let him finish. To speak about the truth. Hmm, okay, so he came to say something to the world through his words and I think also through his actions. Certainly, uh, he spoke to us uh, by the way that he died. What did he come to speak to us about? What is this truth? Well, we know it's very important. This is the same truth that he said, you will know the truth, this truth, and the truth will set you free. What truth is it ultimately that sets us free? Well, let's go back the key words, I think, uh, that Jesus is uh, referring to. And I'll just mention two passages, one in John 8, and this is the Pharisees kind of ridiculing Jesus. And they said, where is this so-called father of yours? And Jesus said, you're looking right at me and you don't see me. How do you expect to see the father? If you knew me, you would at the same time know the father. I see this as just so redundant throughout the gospels, the writings of Paul. Jesus came to reveal to us the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And this other passage, perhaps more familiar, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that's true, but what does it mean? How in the world would we know anything about the Father except through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We come to the Father with confidence, boldly, because we know what he's like, thanks to the life and death of Jesus. So now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Yeah, that's incredible. Have we seen the eyes, the nose, the face of the Father? No, this is referring to a character revelation of what God is like. Okay, but the disciples here frequently didn't get the point. And so Philip, I'm glad he asked this question. Lord, show us the Father. He didn't understand the meaning. That is all we need. And Jesus answered, for a long time I have been with you all. Yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, he came to reveal what God is like. He came to reveal his character. If we've seen Jesus, we know what God is like. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Okay, so after all this revelation of what God is like, conclusions, summary statements. This is where our theology should come in. Now we can summarize all of this, and I'll just mention a couple summary statements in 1 John. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why did he come? What understanding did he come to bring us? Well, here it is. So that we know the real God. We are in the one who is real, his son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ is the real God and eternal life. Jesus is the real God. And guess what? There it is, eternal life again, not defined in terms of the number of the length of time that it lasts. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. And of course, the most uh, two most famous of all, now the message that we have heard from his son and announces this. What's the message? What's the summary statement? Here it is. 
God is light, and there is no darkness at all in him. Okay, does, does the world fully believe this? God is light. God is all good. There's not a shred of darkness in God. And again, most famous of all, God is love. If we can truly read the whole Bible and come to the conclusion, you know what? God is completely good. There's not a shred of darkness that's there, and I've come to this conclusion. God's just like Jesus. He's love itself. All right, That's, I hope, the conclusion that we'll arrive at. Okay, But although most people, I think, would nod at this, that are Christians, we have to go through, I think, some very difficult hurdles sometimes that get in the way of really internalizing that belief. Let me just mention two of those. The first is a lot of the stories in the Bible that could suggest something to the contrary. For example, the story of the flood. We'll spend a long time talking about this. Do you all read the story of the flood and then your image of God at that moment is Jesus holding children on his lap? Okay, the whole world died except eight that got on the boat. Is there any contradiction there? Okay, and a very difficult story, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you remember the disciples who knew their Bible quite well, were miffed on one occasion when Jesus was uh, pushed out of a town. And they said, um, hey, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy these people? Remember Jesus' response. Uh, in the Amplified Bible, it says he rebuked and severely censured them. Okay, He didn't do that very often. All right, But this really aroused quite a response from Jesus. So we'll have to try to reconcile uh, some of these things. So... One issue is some of the difficult stories and teachings in the Bible, and it's not just Old Testament. Okay, we come to the book of Revelation, and you know the story about the lake of fire. Very, very end of the Bible. But then we read, there is no fear in love. Is anyone afraid about what happens in the very end? Destruction of the wicked. And there's a problem here, because... As we've just said, what God wants more than anything is relationship, friendship, love, trust. I mean, it's the same kind of things that we want with our friends and our family, right? But what happens if there is fear introduced? I mean, I don't know how many of you are married, but you know, just imagine that um, maybe you really love and you trust someone, you have a great relationship, and you're going to propose, and um, so you go out to a nice place and you propose, but then just, you know, you're thinking you really want to get a yes. And so after proposing, you pull out a gun and put it on the table and just say, if you don't say yes, I will have to shoot you. <laughs> now, um, what happens to the love and trust of the person sitting across the table at that moment? It's completely destroyed. Okay, so when our freedom is violated in that way, when our freedom is violated in that way, love and trust is gone. Now, she might say yes because she doesn't want to get killed, right? But um, the problem here is the Bible interpreted in a certain way can lead to one of two results. One is people reject the God altogether because they uh, just don't understand. He seems too fearsome, too forbidding. And so we have a large population uh, of individuals that are atheists. But then there's another problem. There are people that stay in the church and are Christians because they don't want to be punished. Okay, but do they really have a trusting friendship with God? We'll talk a lot about fire. And I know it's maybe kind of dangerous to bring some of these subjects up and not even suggest 
what this means. We will, but it'll take some time. Now, that's one issue that I think uh, makes it difficult for people. And this is the point of the Bible study, to go through these stories. The other difficult issue is the problem of pain and suffering. Okay, now I think we would all agree God is powerful. He's not weak. Okay, so we have an all-powerful God who we've just said is just like Jesus, all kind, all good, all loving. But what do we watch in the world? Okay, a wor this world is a mess. So how do we reconcile an all-good God, an all-powerful God, with people that die and suffer? And I didn't realize until I put this uh, Bible study together how many kind of inflammatory pictures there are here, but this, this picture is very disturbing to me, but it, you know, picture's worth a thousand words. And this is a poor boy here who is obviously malnourished, and there's a vulture in the background. All right, this makes the point that we have, I mean, if, if we just, if there, were, there was a big window here on this wall and we saw this child out on the lawn, I think every single one of us would rise to our feet and give up our food and give him water, rush him to the hospital, right? So the question is, God, who does not even go to, need to go to that kind of an effort, uh, how can this kind of suffering go on in the world? We'll spend a lot of time talking about those issues because, again, these are the things that cause people to reject God. You say he's powerful. You say he's love. How can something like this happen? Well, to try to answer some of these questions, I'm just going to tell you the conclusion that I've arrived at, and I'm going to leave out all the steps in between. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead and the point of the next two years is, I hope, for us, and me included, to come to better answers to these questions. And I believe the answer to every single question is Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Well, we could approach this from several different ways. I want to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, though, and, and describe this process. While he was praying, his face changed its appearance and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were there talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in heavenly glory and talked with Jesus about the way in which he would soon fulfill God's purpose by dying in Jerusalem. And I love the description I heard recently that, I mean, this is just like Jesus. You know, you've seen the Superman movies when he begins to take the coat off and you see the big S underneath, that uh, this is Jesus revealing, hey, guess what, guys? I'm God. And he gets bright and glorious. He's revealing who he is. Okay, but notice what happens. Peter and his companions were sound asleep, but they woke up. I think that would wake us all up. And they saw Jesus' glory in the two men who were standing with him. Now notice, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, how good it is that we are here. We will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I like the little commentary here. He did not really know what he was saying. He's kind of befuddled at this. But the description I love about this is notice, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter jumps in and tries to erect these three monuments. Remember, Peter was always the one who wanted to establish an earthly kingdom, to defeat the Romans, to sit at the right hand of Jesus. When Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be crucified, Peter was the one who said, no. Remember, Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. Peter was the one who did not want the kind of kingdom that Jesus was trying to describe, a kingdom that was within, not a kingdom that was about earthly might and power. And so what I think Peter is doing here, as the men were about to leave, 
Peter is just saying, no, this is what I want, this kind of power. Let's erect three structures here. Uh, let's make this a permanent site. Let's make this a Kodak moment that will last forever. And let's begin the kingdom right now that will spread out and take over the whole world. Okay, but notice what happened. While he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them with its shadow. And the disciples were afraid as the cloud came over them. A voice said from the cloud, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Very interesting. In the Old Testament, God came down in a cloud and talked with Moses. In the Old Testament, God came down in a cloud and talked with Elijah. These are the two men that are here. And now the meaning that I take from this is, look, there have been lots of revelations of who God is. There's only one perfect revelation of who God is. And that's Jesus. And you are to listen to him. And it's interesting. This comes straight out of the Old Testament. Words to Moses. The Lord your God will send you a prophet, an Israelite, a Jew, like me. You must listen to him. Okay, so the meaning to me is there have been lots of revelations. And the Old Testament is an absolutely inspired book. But the clear picture, the clear light, is found only in the life and death of God in human form. And for us as Christians, I mean, we call ourselves Christians. We take the name Christ. And unless we're going to do lots and lots of things that are in the Old Testament, if we're going to start stoning Sabbath breakers and, and so on, now we take, we take our marching orders, as I heard from someone, directly from Jesus. What did Jesus say? What did he teach? And how did he explain the Old Testament? Okay, one other verse on this. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And absolutely, that's in the Old Testament. But now, I tell you, notice, we, we are given permission to have a hierarchy of truth in the Bible. Yes, those words are there. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you know, Osama bin Laden just quoted that in his recent uh, video release. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, we're Christians. We don't operate by those methods. But now, I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. Okay, these are very hard words for us, but they're very direct. Yes, that's the way it has been all throughout human history, but now is a time for a change. So a Christian, again, is someone who models himself, herself after Jesus Christ, who said, love your enemies, do not strike back, not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, tooth for a tooth. So uh, I want to just give a few examples, first of all, about what is a Christian, to model yourself after Jesus Christ. This is the clearest verse. And now I give you a new commandment. It's interesting. This is really not a new commandment, but I think Jesus is saying, you guys have never followed this. Let's start now. Let's make it new. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know you're Christians in the real sense of the word if you love one another. But yet we've never made this a test. I mean, have you ever heard of someone being disfellowshipped because they just weren't a loving person? Okay, we'll kick them out for all kinds of other reasons. But yet the ideal is that we're loving people. So let's take some examples here. Let's uh, I, it isn't time to go through the flood and all these other different stories, but let's just take a few issues in the world. Let's say the outcasts of society. And we've, we have said 
All right, Jesus is our model. We're looking for Jesus for highest understanding about things. How should we treat the outcasts of society? We are to love one another. That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, and another rather disturbing uh, picture here, but unfortunately to some, this is the face of Christianity. Now, are these people revealing love for others? Um, is this, would Jesus hold up a sign like this? And, and I just show you this to you because this is very, very harmful in that this is sometimes the reputation that Christianity is given in the world. Now, it's interesting, some of these, uh, these words here, now you can certainly find in Leviticus some hard words about, uh, let's say, homosexuality, but again, a few verses later on, gluttonous children should be stoned to death. And Sabbath, people who pick up sticks on the Sabbath should be stoned to death. So to be consistent, we really should be um, doing all of these other things. You would think, just by watching what maybe what's heard about Christianity on the media, that Jesus must have talked a great deal about homosexuality. Uh, when, what did he talk about? Uh, Self-righteousness, greed, and uh, hypocrisy. So I'm certain these things are just as important to people who would hold up a sign like this. But again, how would you like to come along, someone is just driven by in a car, and you meet up with them later, and you say, you know, let me tell you about uh, Christianity. And no, I just saw the face of Christianity driving over here. I'm really not interested. Thanks. Well, anyway, we'll need to talk about some of these things. How did Jesus treat the outcasts of society? A woman caught in adultery, you know, just, just had committed the act and is thrown right at the feet of Jesus. And he said, I don't condemn you. Okay, that's pretty remarkable. Another verse that is almost more remarkable. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw him keeping this kind of company. What kind of company? With the outcasts of society. They had a fit and led into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Again, this is our ideal, though. We as Christians should be going out there. The outcasts of society, when they hear the word Christian, should associate someone who will help me, someone who, will, who is a servant, someone who is love personified. Okay, that's really the ideal. And unfortunately, we Christians have um, frequently not given good God a good reputation in the world. Okay, well, how about enemies? How are we to treat enemies? And of course, during the last 2,000 years, people have been burned at the stake in the name of Christ uh, for doing things like trying to translate the Bible into a, a modern speech or a language that people could understand. Okay, but even if we assumed that that was a bad thing, that this really was an enemy of God, um, did God suggest these methods? It's be, be good to burn these people to death. Then, of course, conquering the world in the name of Christ using military methods. Okay, I chose an older picture, so not to be uh, too over the top here. But what, um, what is the right way? What is the, the Christ-like way to conquer the world? But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Okay, it doesn't sound like good advice, though. It's not smart from a worldly perspective, right? If we don't kill our enemies, they're going to kill us. Okay, but the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in is not necessarily smart from a worldly perspective. I mean, it was not smart for Jesus having all this power to allow people to torture him to death. Okay, that was not smart. But again, that ushered in a great new understanding 
about God. All right, so these kinds of things, questions, all the way through, we always need to be coming back to the ideal. Now, some might say, well, Jesus did use hard words. But who did he use hard words against? It was the religious leaders. It was the people who went to church every week and who were studying their Bibles all the time. He never said to an outcast or to someone caught in the act of doing something like adultery, you are of your father the devil. It was always the people who were proclaiming and promoting uh, a message about God. Well, I wanted to read a, a story here. This is, I know for some of you that came last year, uh, this is a familiar one, but it's one of the most important to me in the Bible. And I won't give you the context, just because I want us to try to understand and think about what, what Jesus should say under this circumstance. And the setting is the disciples are grumbling about who's going to be first in the kingdom. Judas has already betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees. All right, and so this is what's going on. And then we have these words. Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he'd come from God and was going to God. And so in recognition of this complete power, he went on to do something. And I like stopping in the middle of verses because it kind of forces us, if we know the stories backwards and forwards, there isn't much uh, shock to it. But listen to what he did. In recognition of that power and in the setting of what was going on. So he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist. And so in this horribly, it would seem, depressing setting where his disciples are you know, breaking off, and when we think it might be the right thing to show some authority, you know, at least bring some she-bears into the room and uh, scare them a little bit, maybe a little fire from heaven, and he took off his outer garment and he washed their feet. And he washed the feet of Judas, as amazing as that might seem. His betrayer, full knowledge of his betrayer. He washed his feet. And so the power, really, of Christianity, I think, is the power of the towel, not the power of the sword. It is to serve and to love. That's the only way you can change someone's heart and change the way they think and act. And he went on. I won't read the whole verse, but after washing their feet, he said, now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. And we might think, okay, this means we should have a foot washing service uh, in church periodically. But I think the real meaning is, now that you know this truth about me, now you know the truth about the way my kingdom operates, service, love for others, how happy you Christians will be if you can actually put that into practice. And of course, he went out and he was tortured to death. And as he was dying, he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing could have so easily revealed some of that glory like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Everyone would have been on their knees worshiping him, but instead he forgave them, forgave his enemies who didn't ask for forgiveness, and died. And so as Christians, we are to try to reflect that kind of love to the world. That's the ideal. Jesus, the cross, is the ideal. Now, the other issue I mentioned in the last couple minutes is the problem of pain and suffering. And uh, I saw a patient about a year ago uh, for headaches. And um, the real issue was her son, just over a year ago, was driving to college, first year of college, just leaving home for the first time. And on the way to college, he was killed in a car accident. And she had suffered incredibly over this, headaches, depression, all kinds of problems. And so I was just asking her, you know, what, what kind of keeps you going? 
uh, with the, this horrible tragedy that's happened in your life? And her answer was, uh, I just have to believe it's God's will. Now, this is, a, of course, a common belief, but imagine the difficulty. She was a very religious person, went to church uh, every week, prayed a lot about this, um, but her mindset was not so much God is suffering just as much as I am over the death of my son. Her mindset was God is pleased. It's his will that my son was killed in this car accident. Well, this is a big subject, the problem again of pain and suffering, but I just want to mention a couple things. One is in the Lord's Prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is God's will being done? In heaven. We are to pray that God's will will be done on earth. God's will is not being done on earth. I mean, we just have to go to CNN or watch the news to see that these horrendous things that are happening are not God's will. Hey, this is a dangerous planet, chaos, horrible things that happen every day, and this is in no way God's will. What is God's will? Again, we've said Jesus is the answer to everything. So let's just look back a little bit, and let's remember that Jesus happened to walk by a funeral. Just as he arrived at the gate of the town, a funeral procession was coming out. The dead man was the only son of a woman who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart was filled with pity, and he said to her, don't cry. And of course, we know he, no problem, raised the boy back to life. What is God's will? Here we see God's will. He walks by a funeral, and man, it's terrible, and he raises the boy to life. Now, we'll have to ask the question, why doesn't he do this um, on this planet now? But again, we want to see God's will. Here's God's will. How does he feel about pain and suffering? He, his heart is filled with pity at every single bit of it. Okay, let's go to another example. How about, you know, all of you going to be physicians, you'll see lots of horrible disease. How does God feel about that? Well, a man suffering from a dreaded skin disease came to Jesus, knelt down and begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. And here we have it again. Jesus was filled with pity. How does God feel about pain and suffering? He's filled with pity. And he reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. And I'd love to hear the tone of voice and so on, but uh, I do want to be clean. We want to know what God's like. There's our answer. And the last story, the story of Jairus' daughter, you're probably familiar with this, but maybe not one little aspect of it that I like. Okay, so this girl is dead. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I tell you to get up. She got up at once and started walking around. She was 12 years old. And when this happened, they were completely amazed. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. And he said, give her something to eat. And I'd read over this for who knows how long and missed the part at the end. I mean, Jesus, no problem, raises this girl to life. And all these people in the room, who's the person concerned that the girl's hungry? Jesus. Give her something to eat. Now, if Jesus is concerned about this uh, 12-year-old girl who he's just resurrected, concerned that she's hungry, how does he feel about that horrible picture of the boy who's starving? Um, certainly much more compassion. So we will have to put all the pieces together to figure out why what we see in the life of death of Jesus we don't see on a day-to-day um, example in this world, but I think there are some answers. So we'll talk about this um, starting with Genesis 1 in two weeks. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for 
coming in human form. Thank you that you have revealed to us who you are. Please help us to not be afraid to ask questions. And in our search over the next two years, please open our minds. Help us to respond to your love. Help us to come closer to a trusting relationship with you. Amen.